Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A man unhinged and obsessed with his coworker. Revenge taken out on an entire office building and seven left dead. This is Method and Madness, Episode 7, Path of Destruction, Richard Farley. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. She can't regret it if she doesn't live. Those words were uttered by a man after committing mass murder at the building of his former employer, a man that was armed with enough weapons and ammunition to continue shooting until the end of the day. How did it come to this? Let's dive in. Today's story takes us to the Silicon Valley, to a technology firm, Electromagnetic Systems Laboratory, or ESL, in Sunnyvale, California. ESL was founded in 1964 and built direction-finding equipment and signal processing systems for the United States government, as well as developed software, systems analysis, and hardware in a growing technology industry. In the summer of 1984, ESL was located on Java Drive in Sunnyvale and employed many in engineering fields. So when 22-year-old Virginia native Laura Black graduated college that year and received a job offer from ESL in the field of electrical engineering, she excitedly packed her bags and headed west to pursue her dream job. It was an industry that was dominated by men, and Laura was eager to make her mark. She found an apartment and a roommate and looked forward to settling into her new life. As a new employee on her first day, Laura was given that all-too-familiar tour that anyone who has worked in an office can relate to. Her supervisor walked her around the building, introducing her to her new co-workers. It was then that she first met the man that would change her life, 36-year-old Richard Farley. Farley would later say that upon meeting Laura, he instantly fell in love with her. Richard Farley was born on July 25, 1948, in Texas, the oldest of six children to parents Mina Bell and Thomas. His father was in the military, and the family moved around a lot until they finally settled in Petaluma, California, about 35 miles north of San Francisco. Richard joined the U.S. Navy in 1967 and served until he was discharged in October 1977. He then got a job with ESL and was considered a seasoned, valuable employee working in cryptologic technician maintenance. About a month after Laura Black started working at ESL, she went out to lunch with her coworker Tom Birch, and Richard Farley tagged along. They dined at a local restaurant, the three of them discussing the workplace, small talk, etc., and afterward, Farley asked Laura out for that weekend, to which she declined. She thought he seemed like a nice enough guy, but wasn't interested in engaging in anything other than a professional relationship with the man that was 14 years her senior. Despite turning him down, Laura began to find small gifts on her desk and home-baked goods, things that Farley had left for her. At first, she would politely thank him, kept things cordial, but inside was feeling uncomfortable with the unwanted attention. Farley continued to pursue her, and she continued to be very clear that she was not going to go out with him. 
Laura, who was outgoing and pleasant to be around and was fitting right in with her other co-workers, soon joined the company softball team, happy to be making new friends until a fan began showing up at the games. Farley would watch her play, sit near her, cheer her on, provide unsolicited advice, and just basically always be there. At the office, he would call her desk several times a day asking her out or asking her why she wouldn't give him a chance. And it didn't stop there. It went beyond work events and calls and gifts on desks. Laura joined a local gym, and one day, while at an aerobics class, she ran into Farley, who had joined the same gym just to be near her. It seemed no matter where she went, there he was. He started attending all the same aerobics classes as her and was certainly not backing off, no matter how many times Laura turned him down and reiterated that they were never going to have a romantic relationship. Imagine the pit in her stomach when Laura started discovering Farley outside of her home, waiting for her outside her apartment near her car or waiting in the parking lot leaning against his car, always uninvited, of course. Farley had gone to the Human Resources Department at ESL, and by telling them some made-up story, was able to get Laura's address. He would drive by her home several times a week, mail her letters, pleaded with her to give him a chance, and even managed to get a key to her office at ESL. He'd enter when she wasn't around, go through her personal papers, take things out of her trash, anything to find out more about her and her family. He would use this information to strike up conversations with Laura or to find other ways into her life. He was completely obsessed. According to Laura, Richard Farley would set up, quote, catch-22s where he would tell her to call him if she didn't want to go on a date with him. Otherwise, he said, he'd be at her home to pick her up at eight. In his mind, since she didn't call him to cancel, it was a date and her refusal to go out with him was just her playing games. She never called him once, and other than that lunch with their co-worker, Tom Birch, in 1984, Laura never met with Farley socially. In October of 1985, Laura realized she was in way over her head. Her consistent no's were no match for Farley's persistent and disrespectful actions. Laura got her employer involved. She went to her human resources department to make a complaint about the harassment, hoping that since Farley wasn't listening to her, that maybe he'd listen to their employer. HR representative Jean Tuffley addressed the complaint and met with Farley to discuss. Farley was agreeable, promised to stop bothering Laura, and was required to go to counseling to get himself help. Despite attending the counseling, as you can probably guess, None of that actually helped the situation. Two months later, in December 1985, Farley sent a harassing letter to Laura, threatening both her and her roommate. Once again, Farley was pulled into the Human Resources Department, where Jean Tuffley and Farley's supervisor, Charles Lindauer, addressed the harassment of Laura Black. When things had still not improved in January of 86, another meeting occurred, and this time, Farley was issued a written warning. Obviously, Richard Farley was not getting his way and was feeling like he was losing control. He showed up at Laura's apartment that January and confronted her, 
telling her that he was done asking her on dates or asking her to do anything. From now on, he was going to tell her what to do. It was during this confrontation that he also mentioned his prowess as a gunman and that he owned a lot of weapons. Next, Farley sent Laura a letter telling her not to worry, he wasn't going to kill her. He was simply going to give her other options, and she would get to choose one. Each option was going to get worse and worse. In that letter, Farley wrote, Pretty soon I crack under the pressure and run amok, destroying everything in my path, until the police catch me and kill me. You know I'm serious when I show you a letter like this. A few weeks later, Farley was brought back into the office of HR, where he informed Jim Tuffley that ESL couldn't control his relationship with others, and they should stop trying. Tuffley stated that sexual harassment was illegal, and that they were addressing serious allegations, and he needed to leave Laura alone or face termination. Farley didn't lose his temper or start yelling. He remained completely calm and told Tuffley that he owned many guns and wasn't afraid to use them. When Tuffley asked him if that meant he was going to kill her, Farley replied that yes, he would, and would take others as well. After that meeting, Tuffley refused to discuss anything further with Farley, and all communication regarding HR-related issues went through Tuffley's supervisor, John Allen. Why Farley wasn't fired on the spot for threatening the life of Jean Tuffley and of others is unclear. Soon, word got around the office that Laura Black was considering obtaining a restraining order to stop the harassment by Richard Farley that she had now endured for nearly two years. This was a time before anti-stalking laws, and a restraining order was the only option Laura had in keeping Farley away. There was simply no law to enforce, and police most likely would have or did tell Laura that there wasn't anything they could do. Further, this was a time when the term stalking was a very gray area and a misunderstood one. That March, Farley told a co-worker, Iver Vachuone, of his concern about receiving a potential restraining order from Laura. Vachuone told Farley that he could avoid all of this, the restraining order and the conversations with HR, if he just left Laura alone. Farley became defiant, refused to do anything differently, and said that he could do whatever he wanted. Once again, he brought up the fact that he had a lot of guns and knew how to use them. Next, Farley's former supervisor, Dennis Elliott, tried to intervene. He met with Farley and told him that he was aware he was having issues with HR and recommended that he just come to work every day, sit at his desk, and do his job, or he may end up risking his security clearance or even getting fired. Farley again responded with defiance, saying he wasn't afraid of HR. It's safe to say that Richard Farley was completely consumed by Laura Black. Finally, on May 2, 1986, Richard Farley was fired from ESL, effective immediately. While the reasons behind the firing were the harassment of Laura Black and the threats made to HR, the official reason for termination, as noted in his file, was poor work performance. Now, Farley was unable to harass Laura within the walls of ESL, but it certainly wasn't going to stop him anywhere else. He continued to follow her to her aerobics classes, showed up at her apartment, waited for her outside of the ESL office, called her at home, 
and sent her letter after letter after letter, asking questions of her like, Do you believe I can make you pay attention to me? It seemed that any attempt to get distance between Laura Black and Richard Farley only made him try harder to get closer. Laura did all she could to stop the harassment from Richard Farley, made it clear that they weren't ever going to be a couple, constantly begged him to leave her alone, changed her phone number, and between July 1985 and February 1988, she moved three times to avoid him. But it never worked. Every single time she moved, he would find her. Hard to evade someone who is always behind you, always right around the corner. Richard Farley even tried to rent an apartment across the hall from her at one place, but was unsuccessful. In the span of four years, Laura received between 150 and 200 letters from Richard Farley. Two of those letters were sent to her parents' home in Virginia, where she was staying for the holidays one year. Laura had definitely not provided Farley with any of her addresses, let alone her parents. That summer, Farley met a woman, Mei Chang, while taking some college classes, and they began dating. But this, too, did not stop his obsession with Laura Black. He wrote Laura a letter to warn her against getting a restraining order and that he had, quote, nothing to lose but his life. Letters continued to pour in, with Farley telling Laura that things were going to escalate but never specifying what he was planning. In November of 1987, Farley confided in his former co-worker Thomas Birch that he was heavily in debt and owed nearly 30 grand to the IRS. He blamed ESL for a lot of his money problems and wondered how the company would react if there was a shooting at the office and mentioned a recent mass shooting in the area, the McDonald's Massacre, that occurred in San Isidro in 1984 when a man opened fire and shot and killed 21 people and wounded 19 others. Birch thought Farley was simply blowing off steam and didn't take him seriously. Later that same month, Farley ran into former co-workers Gerald Hurst and Lawrence Kane at a deli. The three of them discussed ESL and its management practices, with Hurst mentioning that he felt he was being pushed out or forced to resign. Farley asked the men if his quote-unquote girlfriend still worked there and where her office was located. Kane told Farley that Laura did still work there and told him where her office was. The three of them joked about the company, management, as co-workers or former co-workers do, venting about their issues, and Farley mentioned a solution could be shooting up the place and said he might end up doing it. He then asked the men about the glass doors in the ESL building and whether they were bulletproof. This was an office building with three levels of security clearance, not the kind of place that anyone could just walk into and start wandering around. He mused that, quote, a double-aught buck would take care of that glass, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, Farley wasn't taken seriously, and Hurst and Kane just assumed he wasn't doing anything but venting about a company that had recently fired him. Farley continued to show up outside of ESL, watching for signs of Laura, and on one occasion, employee Robert Peterson saw him and approached him. Peterson told him to leave Laura alone and warned that he may end up in jail if he didn't stop. Farley told him, you're making things worse. Following this confrontation, Farley wrote a letter to Laura telling her that she better shut Peterson up and tell him to mind his own business and that he better not ever see any cops around him. 
In January of 88, Laura found an envelope from Farley on her car outside her apartment. More alarming than a note was what was inside it. A copy of the key to her front door, which he had somehow gotten a hold of and made a copy of. Finally, February 2nd, Laura Black filed for a restraining order and was granted a temporary one, with one of the many terms being that Richard Farley would be prohibited from attending the same gym as Laura. The hearing to make it a permanent restraining order was scheduled for February 17th, and Farley would need to appear in court that day. Farley sent Laura Black's attorney a letter claiming he had proof of their relationship, including photos of them together, which Farley had actually just altered to make it look like they were on dates. He had taken candid photos of Laura with his camera and did a little pre-Photoshop photoshopping. He also claimed to have the garage door opener to Black's home and hotel receipts that he swore would prove they had taken trips together. Laura's lawyer told him to bring the proof to the hearing. With just days before the court hearing, Farley began making preparations for the very thing he had been alluding to. He went out and bought a semi-automatic shotgun and ammunition from Bighorn Sporting Goods. He rented a lane at the shooting range, Target Masters West, requesting six man-shaped targets. He returned to the range the following day and bought 1,000 rounds of ammunition for a handgun, as well as a variety of other boxes of ammunition. On February 12th, Farley, who had been working for a company called Culvalent, went to his HR department and requested to change the beneficiary for his life insurance policy. It had been Laura Black, unbeknownst to her. But his request was now to have it changed over to his girlfriend, May Chang, and he was adamant that it had to happen immediately. On February 15th, Farley started to move most of his belongings to a storage locker that he had rented and then using a check which was ultimately returned for insufficient funds, rented a motorhome from homes away from homes. Tuesday, February 16th, 1988, started off as a typical workday for the employees of ESL. And that afternoon, they had the usual meetings, conversations by the water cooler, grabbed a second or third cup of coffee to make it through the rest of the day, completely unaware of what was to come. Richard Farley, who had already sold his truck to an acquaintance, loaded his motorhome with weapons and ammunition and drove to Java Drive, parking in the lot of ESL. It was 2.50 when he armed himself with guns and ammo, exited the motorhome, and walked toward the front doors, where he came across Lawrence Kane the employee that Farley had not too long ago chatted with, mentioning shooting up the place. Farley shot and killed Kane in the parking lot and then saw ESL employee Randall Hemingway not too far away and shot at him too, but Hemingway was able to protect himself by ducking behind his car. Richard Farley then shot the front door of ESL, walked through the shattered glass on the ground, and entered the building. It was 2.53 p.m., when the first 911 call came in that afternoon. Farley began shooting anyone that got in his way, moving from room to room, shooting and destroying door locks, shooting and killing a man working at his desk, and then ascending the stairs where he shot and killed a third man 
before reaching the second floor. Due to the soundproof walls and heavy security glass, many employees were completely unaware that a shooting was taking place in the office and were still hard at work, typing away at their desks or talking on the phone, working in the labs. Farley continued shooting at people, whoever he happened to come across in the hallways or in an office as he walked by. He shot at equipment, computers, etc., all while on a mission to get to Laura Black's office. He made it there and threw open her door. Initially, she turned and smiled until she saw who it was. He pointed one of his guns at Laura and fired twice. Laura yelled, Rich, no, before falling to the floor. Farley reloaded and walked away. ESL employee and survivor Greg Scott was shot in the face and finger and lie on the floor of one of the rooms, face down, and recalled, quote, I was face down on the floor and my glasses were filling full of blood, and I thought, I'm the only one in this room. The blood's got to be from me. I've been shot. I'm going to bleed to death. Police were arriving on the scene along with SWAT, surrounding the building, but not entering just yet. At 3.15, Farley, who was still roaming the second floor of the building, hit pause on his rampage and used one of the office phones to call ESL security and identified himself as the one who is, quote, wasting all these people and that he was doing it because of Laura Black and her lawyer. When asked if he was going to kill anyone else, Farley responded no. He was going to just shoot up equipment. He called security back a few minutes later and asked to speak to the police, but they weren't in the area of security at the time. At 3.20, facilities manager John Kitching received a call from Farley, who said to please tell Mei Chang that I'm sorry, and that, quote, I got Laura. This will all be over at 5 o'clock. Farley continued to move around the second floor, ensuring that law enforcement wouldn't be able to pinpoint his location and take him out via sniper. Around 3.30, Farley spoke with Sunnyvale Police Captain Albert Scott. Scott tried to get Farley to give up and come out, but Farley responded that he wanted to gloat for a little bit longer and that Laura had belittled him. Several more calls came in from Farley to various ESL employees inside the building. In each call, Farley was calm and talked about having enough ammunition to keep on shooting through until 5 o'clock. He stopped by a desk at one point and saw someone hiding under it, told them to come out. That's when he saw that it was his friend and landlady, Linda Walden. He told her that she could go. Another employee, Christine Hansen, heard the exchange and thought it was the police, so she came out from her hiding place as well. Farley let her leave too, and the two women went outside to safety. Between 3.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m., hostage negotiator Lieutenant Ruben Grijalva talked to Farley several times by phone and tried to get him to surrender. Farley told him he began planning this day when he received the first notice from the court and that when he initially arrived at ESL that afternoon, he considered changing his mind but didn't want Laura to think he was a wimp. He said the advice that ESL employee Robert Peterson and Black's lawyer gave to Laura was bad advice and that all he wanted was to date her. If she had dated him, if she had gone out with him just once, none of this would have happened, he said. He told Grijalva that he had shot Laura but wanted her to live so she could remember it and that three or four people were lying around the first floor and that everyone on the second floor was dead. 
He also discussed possibly taking his own life or having cops take him out, but he was afraid he'd survive and end up suffering. Farley asked Grijalva to tell his parents that he was sorry. He also was sorry that Chuck Lindauer wasn't there that day, as he was the one who terminated him. And he informed the hostage negotiator that he had purchased enough gasoline to blow up the building, but it was too heavy to carry inside with the weapons. At 4.30, at the request of law enforcement, Farley allowed rescuers to come in and take out those that were injured. From then on, all calls between Farley and the negotiator were recorded. Farley really opened up, offering more admissions and more insight. Quote, there's no more reason to harm anybody. I've run out of enthusiasm for things, really. I've shot up a lot of terminals. I guess it's better than shooting people because it punishes ESL at the same time. I need to get back at somebody, basically. He said that he wanted Laura to regret getting him fired, but that he never wanted to hurt her. He just wanted her to take him seriously. That the two of them could have just talked, but that the, quote, court thing was the final straw. When he received the summons in the, in the mail, that was when he decided he would do something, and it wasn't until that morning that he had seriously considered hurting Laura. According to Richard Farley, his main reason for going to ESL that day was to destroy a lot of the equipment, do as much damage as he could, and cause the most financial loss to the company that he felt owed him so much. He told the hostage negotiator that there wasn't anyone in particular that he had wanted to harm, but that people were in the way and he just shot. However, if he had come across employee Robert Peterson, he would have shot him. He also said, quote, I'm tired of shooting equipment and I'm tired of shooting terminals. They just explode, spread glass on me. It's not fun anymore. While on the phone with Grijalva, Farley inquired about Laura, asked if she was okay, whether she survived. Grijalva didn't know and said he would look into it, to which Farley responded, I hope she's doing good. If the slug did catch her or the whatever it was that I hit her with, she can't regret it if she doesn't live. By his own admission, Richard Farley seemed ready to put the weapons down and was done at shooting things, but was still nervous to surrender. He requested some food while he was waiting in the building and told Grijalva that he was hungry and requested a number 26 from sandwich shop Togo's, which, according to their current menu, is a turkey, ham, and cheddar. He also wanted a large cup of Diet Pepsi with a lot of ice. He kept emphasizing the ice as he liked to chew it. Grijalva promised he would work on getting Farley his food and continued to try to draw him out of the building peacefully. Finally, at 8.30 p.m., Grijalva told Farley that the ice was melting in his Pepsi and that he should come out and get his meal. Farley agreed, walked downstairs through the carnage and the mess he had made and out the destroyed front door and peacefully surrendered to waiting law enforcement who arrested him. Grijalva met him in the parking lot and gave him his Togo sandwich and Diet Pepsi. At the end of the day, Richard Farley's violent rampage ended with seven dead and four injured. Laura Black was among those injured, having been hit in the shoulder and suffered a punctured lung. After being shot, she had hid with co-workers attempting to stop the bleeding until she was rescued. Twenty-six people emerged from the building that day unharmed. According to toxicology reports, Richard Farley had no alcohol or drugs in his system that day. Inside the ESL building, 
Police found an arsenal, a semi-automatic shotgun, a rifle with a scope, several revolvers, a smoke bomb, pouches and bags containing more than 200 rounds of ammunition, and a vest with over 800 rounds of ammunition, as well as matches and a foot-long buck knife. A search of Farley's motorhome turned up four gallons of gasoline, a loaded pistol, and more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition. At Farley's home, more guns and ammunition were found as well as a gas mask. On his dining room table were the temporary restraining order, the rental agreement for the motorhome, and Farley's will. Richard Farley pled not guilty and, while awaiting trial, confided in a fellow prisoner that, quote, I think they should be lenient since it's my first offense. If I did it again, they should throw the book at me. A few weeks after the shooting, Richard Farley wrote one last letter to Laura Black from jail, which said, When I go to the gas chamber, I'll smile for the cameras, and you'll know that you'll have won in the end. In April, he wrote to Chrysler regarding his car payment. I'm in jail and will no longer be able to make payments. I would like the previous bank to know its harassing letters and failure to allow me to purchase the car were contributing factors to the death of seven innocent people. Signed, Rich Farley, Mass Murderer. ESL survivor Greg Scott recalled the terror that day and the trauma he experiences every day. You can't go into a room anymore without checking out two exits. You go into a conference room and you want to be seated next to one of the doors. It changes everything about your life. In October 1991, Richard Farley was found guilty of the first-degree murders of Joseph Silva, Wayne Williams, Glenda Moritz, Ronald Reed, Helen Lamparter, Ronald Doney, and Lawrence Kane. He was also found guilty of the attempted murders of Gregory Scott, Richard Townsley, Randall Hemingway, William Drake, and Karen Mackey as well as an assault with a firearm charge for his attack on Laura Black. Could this madness have been prevented? Let's take a look at the evidence, Richard Farley's behavior, and break it down a bit. At his trial, Farley's mother, Mina, and brother, Gregory, both testified that Richard was not a violent child, was quiet, studied a lot, and was helpful at home. However, they both admitted under oath that neither of them knew Richard much during his adulthood as he had spent 10 years in the Navy and they didn't see him or really speak to him much after he was discharged. Several neighbors that knew Farley as a child also testified, but nothing alarming really came out. This wasn't a boy that was torturing pets or, or bullying classmates. So by all accounts, it seemed Richard Farley was an average child who, who had done well in school. Now, when you look at his actions as an adult, it's striking how many signs were either ignored or shrugged off as just banter or venting. Laura Black really did all she could, and in an interview with ABC said that no is a full sentence. She has been criticized by a small minority that say she should have just gone out with him once. Well, no. First of all, she didn't want to and made that clear, and nobody should ever be bullied into doing something. Let's say she did go out with him once just to get him off her back. It would do the exact opposite. It's like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum. You give in once and that toddler knows exactly how long they have to scream or throw themselves on the floor until they get their way. Mom or dad giving in doesn't stop the tantrums. It perpetuates them. 
And if Laura Black had agreed to go out with Richard Farley just once, it would only have gotten worse and might have escalated his violence earlier. Remember, he was a master at justifying his actions. The thing is, Richard Farley was practically begging to be stopped. He told more than a few people that he had a lot of weapons and was good with them. He threatened his HR rep at ESL. His behavior was noticed by several ESL employees who tried to intervene. But what would really have stopped Richard Farley from committing this heinous act of violence? Maybe nothing. We, we could say that armed security at ESL could have stopped him, right? But who's to say that wouldn't make him redirect his violence somewhere else? It's a scary thought that the truth of the matter is, there was maybe nothing that really would have stopped Richard Farley. He did just enough to stay off of law enforcement's radar. Until February 16th, he remained right behind that line before breaking the law. Through his own admissions and conversations, the thing that scared him most was police or court involvement. He probably thought he could continue his harassment of Laura until the end of time, and as he told hostage negotiator Grahalva, the court order was the last straw. Since the mass murder at ESL, California has enacted anti-stalking laws, and according to the latest info, under Penal Code 646.9PC, California law defines criminal stalking as following, harassing, and threatening another person to the point that the person fears for his or her safety. Stalking can be charged as a misdemeanor or a felony. A conviction carries a penalty of up to five years in jail or prison. Laura Black went through several surgeries to repair the damage caused by the bullet that hit her that day. Afterward, she went on to continue working at ESL. Richard Farley is currently on death row at San Quentin State Prison. There hasn't been a prisoner executed there since 2006. And if Richard Farley does get executed, he'll have to smile for the cameras at his lethal injection rather than the gas chamber. Because according to him, that's when Laura Black will have won. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741. How can we protect ourselves and each other from workplace violence? Check the show notes under the episode for more information.